the blood. Let's pray. Lord God, this is an ancient text, and it is foreign to us, but also important. Lord God, would you help us to understand it today? Would you bring it near to us so that we can understand and live in the presence of God, in the nearness of God, and that it may be for us good and not destruction? Be with us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's imagine for a moment this scene that we've got described for us in Exodus chapter 24 applied to us today. So you got up this morning, Sunday, you you had a nice breakfast, you took a shower. Maybe you got into your Sunday best, or maybe you recognized that it was going to be a little bit humid, and so you got into your Sunday best slash most comfortable linen shirt, something light and nice so that you wouldn't be too hot when you came into an air-conditioned building. And you came to church, and you came into the sanctuary, and of course the sanctuary has the nice, fresh coat of paint on it, the new lighting. But what you found when you came into the sanctuary was actually this great ruckus, this great noise taking place, all of these animals parading around up at the front, being led up to the front. And up at the front, you find me, Tommy, some of the elders up there slaughtering animals, pouring their blood into basins. You smell the stench. You hear the squeals of the animals as things are taking place. And then we, we, we take the blood of the basins and we throw some of it all around the front of the church. And then we take more of it and it's in basins and maybe we get a branch and we dip the branch into these basins of blood and just start whipping it out on all of you. It's interesting. I don't know if in church growth studies whether or not you'd come back the next week. <laughs> kind of makes you glad you live in the time of the new covenant. But it would be something like that. But even in the new covenant, we had a sprinkling with blood today. It just looked different. It was the fulfillment of everything that we have set before us in Exodus 24, but it was cleaner and it was simpler, and it didn't involve blood because the blood was already on the land of Jesus Christ. And so it was fulfilled what is written on the very front of your bulletin this morning in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. I'll cleanse you. Blood sprinkled in the form of water this morning in our service. This covenant that God is making with Israel is a matter of life and death. It is His bond with His people. And if you want to put something in your mind to kind of give us a a, a modern-day parallel equivalency, at least in terms of the circumstance surrounding the event, perhaps we could think it's, it's graduation season. You could think of a graduation You can think of an inauguration, a presidential inauguration, a wedding, perhaps the dedication of a building if you've ever been to one of those. All of those are are pictures for us of the kind of ceremony, of the kind of pageantry, of the kind of drama that we see taking place in Exodus 24. But biblically speaking, and when we look at this, this is covenant making. And in particular, this covenant making is done by God with Israel in the context of worship. 
This is a grand worship service that is taking place before us in this scene. I want to look at this passage today. There are a number of ways that you could take apart this passage. What I've chosen to do is I'm going to look at this passage through six Asian words. You can write them down if you'd like to. You won't remember them unless you write them down, but uh, I'll go through them in the sermon. Ratification, confirmation, mediation, purification, dedication, and anticipation. I'm going to take them one at a time. Hang on as we go through it. Ratification, to ratify, to sign or give formal consent, making something officially valid. In this case, what is being made officially valid is God's covenant with Israel. This chapter that you have before you today is the sealing of the deal of this covenant. It is, it is the handshake It is the placing of the ring upon the finger. It is the taking of the vows that say, I do. And it is the pronouncement, the declaration of the officiant. I now pronounce you husband and wife. This is the signing on the dotted line. It is the stamp of the notary public. It is all of those things that we use in our culture and in other cultures to say, this is sealed. This is now ratified. It's going to take place in this way. Ratification brings clarity. It removes ambiguity. This is probably true in real life. It's certainly true in the movies, and in particular, I suppose, it's particularly true in romantic comedies. But at some point, let's use the movies as an example, at some point in a romantic comedy, the characters will try to figure out what is actually happening here. So the two, the, the, the man and the woman who are dating or something like that, will try to determine what's happening here. Are we just friends? Is this just a casual thing that we've got going on with one another? Uh, can we see other people while we're doing this? Or is it more serious? Are we more committed to one another? Are we heading perhaps towards marriage? And ambiguity forms the basic drama of the romantic comedy because clarity has a tendency to remove that drama, at least to some extent, and a wedding removes ambiguity. It clarifies what this relationship is all about, and that's why a lot of the romantic comedies end with the wedding scene. The, 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 the climax has been reached. The relationship has been ratified. I said this in the baptism. And it's important to say it again in this context because what I said in the baptism comes out of this exact context here. God doesn't need this. He knows what his relationship is with Israel. This is not necessary from his perspective. It is rather being done for Israel. And likewise, this baptism is done for us, a seal of what God has accomplished to remove ambiguity, to ratify, to make it clear. Confirmation, to confirm, to establish the truth or correctness of something, to verify, to provide assurance. God not only has no confusion about the status of his relationship with his people Israel, God also has no doubts 
about that relationship. Conversely, we, Israel, are often consumed with doubts about people. Does this person really love me? Will this person really stay committed to me through thick and thin? Could this thing that we're doing really last? Could we maintain this relationship and this commitment and this promise that we're making to one another? And certainly, we're consumed with doubts with regards to the things of God. Is what God said really true? Does He really exist? Is there really a heaven? Am I really going to get there? Can I really trust these promises that Christ has made? We understand doubts. God doesn't have any doubts. But to put it in the words that ring throughout Scripture from beginning to end, to use simply Abraham as one example, when he is in a very similar setting, God has given Abraham great promises, great covenantal truths that he's expressed to him in words, and Abraham has one question. You remember what the one question is in Genesis chapter 15? Oh, Lord, how can I know? Great words. How can I know that this is going to take place? And I never can, I never can ask that question without referencing the rascal's song, because it always comes into my mind. How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? That's what Abraham wants to know. This scene, Exodus chapter 24, is all about God providing assurance to His people by visible signs and seals to confirm the words that He has spoken to them. God has spoken words, right? He's spoken the Ten Commandments. He has spoken the book of the covenant. God adds the things that we'll describe in just a moment, the things that you heard me read about, as signs and seals to confirm the veracity of the Word. You can trust the words that I said. The words and the signs and seals are not the same things. They are different things, but they are signifying the exact same things. The signs and seals are pointing to the Word. You can have the Word without the signs and seals, you cannot have the signs and seals without the words. Baptism isn't a thing in and of itself. It is a thing attached to the promises of God, to the Word of God, to the covenant of God. And so the words are rehearsed in the chapter that is before us. Verse 3, Moses came out and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. This is probably a reference to two things, not, not always in Scripture, but in this particular case, I think it's pretty clear that it is. All the words of the Lord refers to the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are introduced, and this corresponds both in English and in Hebrew, by the way. And God spoke all these words, saying, and the Ten Commandments come next. In chapter 21, with the book of the covenant, it starts out with, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And so, when Moses speaks all the words and all the rules, it's the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, all those things in the chapters that are all of the details he tells to them. Then, in verse 4, Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. In verse 7, Moses reads all of the Book of the Covenant in the hearing of the people. Now, one would think that would be enough right? I mean, he's told them the words. 
He went back and he wrote down the words, and he came back after he had written the words down, which we've read, and he read them again to the people. But there's an addition to it, and of course the addition is found in verse 12, where God says to Moses, come up to the mountain and wait there, that I may give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Moses didn't say, well, thanks a lot. You could have saved me some time. You could have just let me know a few verses earlier that you had it written down on stone. But what is God doing here? Well, this is actually fairly common in ancient Near East and covenant making where you had two copies of a covenant that were prepared as witnesses to that covenant. So Moses has prepared the covenant on behalf of the people, what God said, and God has established the firmness of the covenant and of his word by writing it himself on stone, preparing to give it to the people as well. By the way, we don't have indication of whether or not that's just the Ten Commandments, or does that include the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant? We're not exactly clear on exactly what was written on those tablets. But to confirm those words, then we have all of the things that you saw in this chapter. You've got the altar, the pillars that are set up, the sacrifices that are done, the blood that is some of it tossed onto it and some of it sprinkled across the people that are there, the meal that is eaten by the elders in the presence of the Lord. And in addition to all of that, if, if that was not enough, you also have in the chapter the revelation of God himself as a means by which this is confirmed. All of the people experience God in, in, in seeing the cloud, the fire, and experiencing at least something of the voice of God. That's what led them to terror. But then we have this particular manifestation of 70, or probably 74 when you add these up together, being invited to come at least partway up the mountain and see God. Now, for those of you who are biblically familiar, that's kind of troubling. Wait a minute, I didn't think anybody saw God and lived, at least. Well, just so you know, the, the, the author here gets it. He knows what the problem is. That's why he says, and they weren't killed before the Lord. God didn't kill them. It's surprising. We don't know exactly what they saw. The description of it is interesting, though, because the description that we get tells us nothing about what the presence of the Lord looked like. It only tells us about what? The pavement beneath him. One gets the impression then that this vision or this experience of the presence of God that they had was, was, was one that perhaps they were prostrate, down on the ground where all they saw was this beautiful sapphire pavement that was stretched out before them. We don't know. We don't know exactly what it was because we have actually no description of what it is. But the point being that God reveals himself. God is pleased to deal with our doubts. You don't need to pretend like you don't have any doubts. I know, some of you don't have them. That's great. You don't need to pretend like you don't have any because God is pleased to say, I'm going to give you things in your life to assure you when you have doubts. Noah, I'm going to give you the sign of the rainbow. When you look at it, remember my covenant. Abraham, I'm going to give you the covenant-making ceremony that we'll go through and circumcision. Moses, I'm going to give you all of these things, all of these sacrifices, all of this blood being sprinkled out there. Church of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are signs and seals. These are things to help us to realize that indeed the word is confirmed. 
mediation. Intervention in a process or a relationship. To act as a negotiator or a peacemaker to reconcile two sides. Last week, we saw the people beg Moses to function as a mediator, and here we see the reality of that. We see the fulfillment of that particular request. He will bridge this covenant between God and man, and so Moses will be the mediator of this Sinai covenant that God is making with his people. But we see also somewhat of an expansion of this idea of Moses' mediator in the invitation for the 70 elders to come at least partway up the mountain, and for the others who are included there, including Aaron and his sons, and then Joshua as well. So we kind of get the sense that Moses is at the top of the mediation. He is going to be the one who goes into the cloud, who hears specifically from God, who communicates on behalf of God. But there are others who are further along that mountain than the people who are still at the base and at somewhat of a distance from where all of this is taking place. Moses speaks on behalf of God, and he enters into, as man, God's glorious presence, functioning as mediator. Purification. To purify, to remove contaminants from something. Now, I suspect that neither a modern-day surgical operating room nor the meat department in your favorite local grocery store would think that purification of their space and of the nurses and the doctors and the butchers would take place by throwing blood everywhere. In fact, that would be the defiling of the space, right? You'd have to clean the space after the blood was spattered everywhere. That's not how you clean it. That's what it needs to be cleansed of. This blood that is spoken of here in Exodus is, in fact, purifying blood. It is designed to remove or at least represent the removal of impurity. Hebrews 9.13 says this. I'm just going to read this verse now. I'll finish it in just a moment. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's what's going on with this blood. It is purifying the flesh as it goes out and is sprinkled on the people. The blood and all of the sacrifices that have gone on together combine to make a very simple statement. Sin will kill you, and a sacrifice must be made. You have to be cleansed. You are bloody and defiled, and only blood will cleanse you. This covenant that God is making is deadly serious. Life and death issues are at stake, and this is a great statement by God. Do not take sin lightly. Don't think to yourself, listen, it's no big deal. Other people sin worse than I do. 
God will surely overlook this sin. It surely doesn't make any difference. He understands who we are after all. You are not okay. You are covered with blood. In fact, you are covered with blood guilt. Blood that you have shed. The blood of Cain is on our hands. The blood of Pilate on our hands. And we will not be able to wash it off. You are not okay. You are covered with blood. You are okay. You are covered with blood. Someone else's. A substitute's. A sacrifice whose blood is shed instead of yours and now covers you. Dedication. We've got ratification, confirmation, mediation, purification, and now to dedicate, to devote time, effort, or oneself to a particular task or purpose. How do you respond to this incredible grace of God when the law has been given clarity of life, has been given redemption, has taken place out of Egypt? Blood is everywhere. Sacrifices have been made. What do you say to that? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. You dedicate yourself. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. I said it twice because they said it twice. And, of course, that wasn't the first time. They had said it earlier on, chapter 19, when we first got to Sinai, when Moses first went up and came back down. Some have said that this was a mistake by Israel. Bad thing to say. They should have stuck with the grace of Abraham and not made these statements about obeying God under Moses. That is a mistake. The law, which comes 430 years after Abraham, does not nullify the promise that has been made. In fact, this law that God has given stands on the promises that have been made to Abraham. And so their response is the only response that one can make in this situation. I will do it, Almighty God. Now, You know, I know, if you know anything about the rest of the story of Exodus, Israel's got a lot to learn. They have a lot to learn about themselves, and frankly, it's not going to take very long before the lessons start. But it's the response of the heart that wants to serve God. All that you say, I'll do, will do. This is a Peter-type response. All the others may leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. What do you want him to say? You want him to say, well, actually, I will deny you. I, I, I will do all that, those things. This is the right response for them to make. Dedication of ourselves is never settling for anything less than the goal of the statement, I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want to love my neighbor as myself. I can't ever settle for less than that. You can't play half-hearted with God. You can't play games with God and just give a little bit to God and have the rest for yourself.
You can play games with us. You can play games with me. You can play games with the other people in the church. You can smile and you can come in and you can dress nicely and you can talk nicely to those of us who are, are around. You can play the games. You cannot play games with God. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on inside of us. He knows the conscience, and he wants it all, every bit of it, and he wants it dedicated to him. That is our bloody, ugly, and beautiful scene in Exodus chapter 24. And it is but a very early sketch of a forthcoming masterpiece. It's the artist doing a quick idea. Let me show you what this is going to be like. And that's held. And it's waiting for the artist to finish the masterwork. This has the intent to convey, but not the intent to complete at this stage of what God is doing. That's my Bible. We're really early in the story. The drama hasn't finished yet. We've just started. I used this phrase earlier with reference, and I think it's an important phrase. This, as, as amazing as it is, has a built-in obsolescence. If you want to put it this way, it will not work. This won't hold up. It won't hold up 40 days. It's temporary. Just like the tabernacle would be temporary, just like even the temple itself would be temporary, this is temporary, and therefore anticipation is the Asian word with which we close that list. To expect, to act as forerunner or precursor of that which is to come. To the Israelites, it said, look to the one who is to come to us. It says, look at the one who has come. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many places that we could go to now in the New Testament to parallel each and every one of these points that we've made from this text. But just a few. Peter says this. Compared to Israel in the Old Testament... Those who experienced the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mount where Moses and Elijah were, and those who follow after them by the power of the Holy Spirit and the transformed and transfigured Christ have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Second Peter chapter 1, you can look it up later. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. All of this is confirmation of the word of God. What Peter says is you and I have got it more fully confirmed. Through him, through Jesus, we have a better purification, not only a better confirmation. Hebrews 9, 14, I read 13 just a few minutes ago, and it obviously stopped in the middle of the sentence. 9, 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have a greater purification because not only is the body purified, if you will, by that blood that was shed, but the writer of Hebrews tells us, 
we have a conscience that has been purified also by the blood of Jesus Christ. No blood was shed today in baptism. No blood was actually sprinkled on him. No blood took place in a circumcision rite because no blood is longer needed. No longer is blood needed. Blood is no longer needed because a bloody Savior, a spattered, bloody Savior had sufficient blood for you, sufficient blood for Simon. So we don't need to sprinkle him with blood anymore. The purification has taken place because the perfect blood has been shed. We have better signs. That's why the signs are better. That's why the meal is better. Better sprinkling, clean water, a better dedication. I don't know if you heard that in in verse 14 that I just read first. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It doesn't stop. It says you're purified for a purpose, to dedicate yourselves to God, to serve the living God. We have a better mediation and mediator than they had. Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's been sprinkling sprinkled throughout our service today in the word of assurance in the front of your bulletin in the baptism that took place in the passages that we've read. It's all about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the better mediator and mediation affected by him than could ever have been affected by Moses. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, that is to say the arrangement that existed in the Old Covenant of which we've been reading, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The worshiper remains defiled internally in conscience under that arrangement. But deal only with food and drink and various washings. By the way, the word for washings there is baptisms. Various baptisms that were taking place. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. It's the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. The time of the Reformation. I suppose one last Asian word for you. Reformation, the time where where the things that are crooked and bent get straightened out. That's what has happened in Jesus Christ. All of the bent things, all of the crooked paths are made straight in him. So you're going to go home today. This isn't one of those passages like the Ten Commandments were that give you very specific things that you can apply. Please do not go home and sprinkle blood. Not on yourself, not on your house, not on anything else. Don't sprinkle any blood today. That is not the application. The application for you today is to participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper, to worship with a cleansed conscience through the work of Jesus Christ. He's a better mediator. 
He's got better blood. He purifies fully. He ratifies and he confirms this covenant and the promises of God to you. And so, behold not the blood, behold his blood, and remember your baptism.